The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Hi, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Today's scripture reading will be in Hebrews 12:28 to chapter 13:14 on page 1009 in your pew Bibles. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember, those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is the word of God. It's such an honor to look at God's word with you week in and week out. I'm so thankful we get to do this, that I get to do this with you. Let's pray one more time. Ask God to help us as we hear what he has to say. Heavenly Father, we need your help. I need your help badly, Lord. Will you please help me to teach this passage faithfully? And Father, most of all, will you just speak a better message than, than I can ever speak, one that will hit each one of us in our heart, that we will feel you very closely, for, see you for who you are, respond accordingly as this passage invites us. Lord, help us taste the good things you've given and give us the desire and the energy and the, the passion to go out and do what you've called us to do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So today we are finishing this little mini-series on hospitality, biblical principle, idea, of hospitality. Last week we talked about hospitality in the brotherhood, which I just meant hospitality in the local church. Um, so let's just remember one of, those, one of those verses from last week, 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, Peter says, what does he want us to do? Keep loving one another earnestly. So if you're not loving one another in a local church, what should you start doing? Love one another. And then what should be the nature of your love for one another? It should be earnest, keep, keep after it, and don't just do it once. Keep going, this is our lifestyle, right, as a local church. Keep loving one another earnestly, 
since love covers a multitude of sins. And then what's the next connection? Almost immediately, verse nine. Show what? Hospitality to one another without grumbling. That always makes me chuckle, okay? So we see here, as we saw last week, that when you love one another in a local church, the next step from this passage and many others is a lifestyle of hospitality, where you wanna bring in the stranger into your, into your life and offer a, a sense of welcome, a sense of service, a sense of home in hospitable ways. So it's, it's the simple things, right? It's having somebody over for lunch. It's going out to coffee. It's bringing people in, just listening to them, but it's including one another. The idea is hospitality puts flesh on the love we are to show to one another. It puts skin on it, and it helps us be who we are. We call one another brothers and sisters, right? Hospitality helps us taste that a little more, helps us live it out. So that was hospitality in the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the local church. Today I wanna motivate a little bit in your life, if I can, hospitality we could call in the neighborhood. Hospitality in the neighborhood where neighbors or acquaintances, or people you rub shoulders with, somebody you know from here or there, and be motivated to offer hospitality in those relationships. So that idea of hospitality in the neighborhood, that's just gonna be the application, I hope, of this passage we're gonna work through in the book of Hebrews. So as you heard, as Sandy read it, it's a very rich section of scripture. Uh, we don't have time to work through every detail the way I would like, but I want you to see three things. Number one, I want us to see, and if you've trusted Jesus Christ, I want you to see what you have received. Second, I then want you to see what you have to give as a Christian, what you have to offer. And number three, I want you to see where you need to go. So what you've received, what you have to give, where you need to go, and then I hope and pray you'll see how hospitality is A, not the only, but a major way to live this out. So what we've received, what we have to give, where we need to go. A little bit of a background. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is a first century message delivered to Jewish folks who have trusted Jesus as their Messiah and are now facing persecution for it from other Jews. So they're being ostracized from their own community. They're being rejected, and it's, it's pretty harsh. So there's some sections in the letter where it says, hey, there's, some of you have been thrown into prison or you've lost your property or you're losing relationships. So that's a, that's a certain level there of, of trouble, of suffering, all because they're trusting in Jesus. And so you can imagine then that for this group of people, these Jewish Christians, there's immense pressure on them to just give up on following Jesus and go back to Judaism. Let's just, it's too hard, it's too painful. So let's just go back. I mean, I still get the Old Testament right. I still worship God. I'll just, I'll just leave Jesus over here. I'll go back. And the letter is just a plea to these people. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't give up on explicitly loving, trusting, following Jesus. Don't do it. And he's gonna say over and over again in this letter, Jesus is worth it. Whatever cost there is to belong to him, he is worth whatever cost. So as he writes... He gives us this contrast throughout the entire letter. He keeps saying to these Jewish Christians, one reason you'd never want to go back to Judaism or old covenant worship is because that old covenant is all about Jesus. 
He fulfills it. And so episode after episode, the author will say, Jesus is better than what you had over here. He's better than what we knew over here. He's the point. And so he says to these Jewish Christians, if you leave Jesus to go back to Judaism, that's like, that's like leaving your wife for a Barbie doll you bought at a garage sale. That's like leaving a Mustang for a matchbox car. It's like leaving the ultimate fulfillment of what we were promised for the shadow and the shell that doesn't have the real. The old covenant worship is useless without Jesus. It doesn't do anything. So that's one reason you'd never want to go back. What would you go back to? You're going back to a promise without the fulfillment when the fulfillment is right here. The reason I give you that background is because that's exactly what the author's doing again here at the end of chapter 12 and into chapter 13. Jesus is better. Don't go back to life without Jesus. Whatever the pain or cost is to have Jesus, it's worth it because he's so much better. And so as we have that in our minds, let's look just back at a, a part of chapter 12 here. And I want you to see now what you have if you're a Christian, what you've received if you're a Christian. And so we're gonna get a contrast between two different mountains. And so you might say, what? <laughs> a contrast between two mountains? But again, remember the author's working from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament, and showing us how Jesus is better than those great and glorious things back then. So does anybody remember a, an important mountain in the Old Testament? Okay, yeah, Mount Sinai. So as God saves Israel from Egypt, he brings them out ultimately to this mountain, Mount Sinai. I want you, I want you to see it, Hebrews 12, 18 to 21. Hebrews 12, 18 to 21. So the author says first, for you have not come, so this is the mountain we're not at, right? You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So what did you gather from that text? What was that first mountain like? It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Don't come near. An animal can't touch the mountain. Why? Why can't we come near? Why is it so terrifying? Because a holy God is coming close. A God who hates evil and sin and loves goodness with 100% white hot passion. And you know what happens when even the best of human beings comes into close contact with a holy God? You don't survive. We don't survive. Our sin is that awful. And so Moses himself, I mean Moses, right? He's kind of like, hey, there's Moses. Moses trembles with fear at the holiness of God. And don't, don't you kind of have a sense of God like this sometimes where he's, he's too high, he's too holy, and the idea of coming near him scares you to death because you just know you're not good enough. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I have that sense a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm not welcome, I couldn't be. I couldn't possibly be. That's the first mountain. But the author of Hebrews is saying to his audience, that's not the mountain you're coming to anymore. We don't need that anymore. Look at what we have now. So the next mountain is in verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to what? What's the other mountain? Mount Zion. It's spiritual. 
But look, look what else is there. Look what else is on this mountain. You've come to Mount Zion and to the what? The city. Now, um, you ever been to the city and you're in the ghetto part of the city? That's not what you're supposed to think about here. You ever gone on vacation to see a certain city? What do you, what's the best of the city look like? In the ancient world, a city gives you protection. I know in the modern world, we're like, hey, let's go hiking. In the ancient world, they're like, enough of lions and bears, please, okay? And criminals. A city means safety. You're safe in the city. What else do you have in the city? You have resources and food. And, and you know what else you have in the city? It, it takes the human experience even higher. You have culture. You have a cre creative arts. You have um, intellectual education. You have uh, all the beauties of human interaction can be found in a city. Um, Revelation, heaven looks like a garden city. Isn't that just kind of perfect? You have come to the city, and whose city is it? A city of the living God. Who's there with you now? God himself is there. And are we, are we trembling like, I can't even touch the mountain, I'll be stoned? Or are we now living in a city with God himself near us, with us? The atmosphere is totally different, isn't it? You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to immeasurable angels in feastal gathering. Angels, okay, not naked baby with wings shooting love arrows, no. What happens when you see an angel in scripture? You're scared to death, okay? They're, they're terrifying warriors, but what are these angels wearing? It's rare that you get angel fashion in your scripture verses, okay? But here the author wants you to know what the angels are wearing. Why, what are they wearing? Feastal gathering, okay, what does that mean? They're dressed for a party and a celebration. It's not the angel of death coming with a sword. It's an angel dressed for a party and a celebration. Do you see how the atmosphere is different? You're in a city with God. You're safe. You have fellowship. And the angels who are his ministering uh, servants, often terrifying, are now like, let's celebrate. We are ready to party with you forever. Verse 23, you've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made what? Perfect. Why do we not have to be afraid anymore? We've been made perfect. We don't have to worry about this horrid tension between a holy God and our sin. We have been, some transformation has brought us in and we're not afraid anymore. The sin has been covered the shame is gone. The judgment's over. Spirit's made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You know, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant and in the verse we saw, he's scared. <laughs> Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and then it gives us this strange phrase which I love. Jesus gives us the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And again, you have to know your Old Testament a little bit to even have a clue on this. You got blood talking and Abel. Well, there's a story, right? It's back in Genesis. Um, Adam and Eve have two boys, Cain and Abel. And Cain does not love God at all. And he's bitter and he's selfish and he's jealous. And in his rage, he actually murders his brother Abel. And then he runs. And so God comes and confronts Cain and says, 
where's your brother? And Cain's like, am I my brother's keeper? You know, why should I care where my brother is? And then God gives this idea of his blood is crying to me from the ground. So that's symbolic, but what do you think Abel's blood is saying? What does God hear when innocent blood is shed? What does he hear? This is what he hears. The blood cries out, you need to bring justice. Abel's blood cries out and says, I was murdered unjustly. You're the judge of the universe, God. You need to bring justice. And so the blood, you you think of this imagery of the blood of our sin crying out, saying, God needs to bring justice on us. But then you get Jesus' blood, and it speaks a better word. What does Jesus' blood say? If Abel's blood says, you need to bring justice, Jesus' blood says, I died for these people. Justice has been satisfied. Justice is content. It's over. We're clean. We're forgiven. Don't you love the idea of Jesus' blood speaking for you? All my deeds would say to God, he needs justice. And then Jesus' blood to come and say, justice has been done. Do you like this new city? Do you you like this blood that speaks a better word? Do you like the idea of being together in the beautiful garden city with God himself forever, enjoying one another, and the angels are dressed to celebrate, and this is our life forever and ever on the new earth in new bodies with one another and with the Lord himself. His blood speaks a better word. Which, which mountain do you want to hang out on? Do you want to go back to the thunder and lightning and getting, getting fried for your sin? Or do you want to go to the new city? It's, it's clear, right? It's clear. This is better. Stick with Jesus. It's better. And you see the author's conclusion in verse 28. Look at what he says. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that what? What does he say about the kingdom? It cannot be shaken. What does that mean? Is, is this like a, you know, is this a, a new, you know, there are no earthquakes in the new earth. Is that what he's talking about? No, come on. What does it mean to you that that kingdom that you've received in Christ can't be shaken? No one can take this away from you. No one can take this away from you. God is going to keep you for this. You will never lose this. You will never lose this. Um, what could happen to uh, your 401k? Maybe it happened to a couple of you several years ago. What can happen to that inheritance? <laughs> okay. Some of us are like, retirement? I don't have anything for that. We look at the future. We don't know what's going to happen. We're scared. We have anxiety. But look at this inheritance you have. Guaranteed. And the only thing necessary to get it is what? You trust Jesus Christ. You've repented of your sin. You've trusted him. And here's what you've received. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's yours forever. End of story. How would you feel if you knew you were gonna inherit a million dollars January 1st? I know some of you are so spiritual where you're like, well, you know, my joy is not in money. Okay, all right. We don't trust you. Okay. How would you feel if you really knew you were going to inherit a million dollars on January 1st? It would be pretty exciting. How would it change kind of how you interact the rest of the fall? Would you be, would you be buying better Christmas presents? 
Would you have people, would you just have a little more bounce in your step? Just a little bit. And maybe, maybe some of those bills you need to pay, you get, you know, you, wow. Would you, would you just be a little more like, hey, pay it forward, you know? Be a little more generous. I'm gonna take more friends out to eat. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be more generous because I know what's coming. Did you know that even if you did inherit a million dollars this January 1st, it won't satisfy your heart? It really won't. It won't satisfy your heart. It won't really change what's good about life and what's sweet about life. It really won't. But just the idea of that inheritance this January would, would move us a little bit. Christian, what would you be like if you could really taste your kingdom that can't be shaken? What would you be like if you really got a taste of what you're going to have forever and ever and ever and nobody can take it away from you? I almost had to buy sunglasses for the sermon because your future is so bright. Okay, isn't that terrible? It's terrible. But you should be a little giddy at the inheritance you're gonna receive and that it can't be shaken. That's what you've received if you've trusted your life to Jesus. Isn't that sweet? That's what you've received. Now, what do you have to give? Look at verse 28. There's, there's two ideas of the heart, responses of the heart in verse 28. Therefore, let us be what? Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. So what's the first attitude of your heart as you realize this is what I'm getting? Gratitude, because what did you do to earn this? In fact, what did you do to not earn it? Lots of stuff, okay? You were trying hard not to earn it with every sin, and yet what have you been given? Just Everything God has, God himself, for free as a gift. Have you ever had somebody give you just the most meaningful, most needed gift? You know you didn't deserve it. They lavished it on you and you had this sense of, oh my gosh, thank you so much. It's this humble kind of joy that comes from just this uh, pleasure and satisfaction in another person's just incredible generosity. That's what our heart should be like towards God. Grateful all the time. Thank you. Thank you that my inheritance is unshakable. I'm gonna be with you forever. There's another response in verse 28 as well. Let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken and let us, God, let us offer to God, what? Acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Church, what should your worship look like? Reverence and awe, a sense of amazement at who God is. Hey, don't be distracted by uh, this little building that needs repairs, and don't be distracted by our humble crowd. Uh, don't be distracted by the mistakes I make when I'm playing guitar, okay? Here's your focus. Do you know who's here as we meet together in the name of Jesus? Do you know who's observing? It's the same God who came with fire on the mountain. It's the same God who you have no place with without Christ taking care of you. It's the same God who, who knows every sin and is holy and just. And for him to bring us into his presence as children of God by grace through faith, we wanna be so thankful, right? We, we are safe 
We want to come and be invited, but we're not like, hey, what's up, God? Right? He's God. And so there should be a reverence and an awe combined with gratitude. What a sweet mixture. What a sweet mixture. You know, you can see God as holy and terrible and you're just, you want to run and you're terrified. Or you can see him as like your grandpa vending machine in the sky. Uh, no backbone at all, wishy-washy. You don't respect this one, you won't love that one. But to see the biblical God in Christ who you have respect for and reverence and awe for because he's so holy and yet you call him father and you're full of gratitude. What a sweet pleasure it is to be known and loved by the holy God. So what's the first thing, first way we respond? Hearts of what? Help me out. Gratitude and reverence. So I, wanna, I want you to take this home with you. What have you received, church? An inheritance, a kingdom that can't be shaken. The first way we respond is in our hearts with what? Gratitude and reverence. Now I wanna show you how that works out in our lifestyles. Okay. As, you, as, uh, as we heard the text read, there was a, a long list of stuff, right? Uh, behavioral things that the author of Hebrews wants to impress to this congregation. I can't, again, we can't go into it all in great detail, but I want you to see the big pictures that come from, right? It's all an echo of knowing you have this inheritance. First of all, when you're full of gratitude, you can be full of of loving generosity. Just the idea first. When you feel like you don't have enough and you're full of self-pity and you think you're barely making it and you're super stressed, do you tend to naturally be full of loving generosity to others? Or do you tend to be a little bit more Scrooge-ish, self-focused, okay? But if you feel like you just got the best gift given ever, You've just been given the, the, the kingdom that can't be shaken and you're so full of thanksgiving, gratitude to God, what begins to happen in your life? Loving generosity, that's exactly what the author says here. Just fly through this with me. 13 verse one, what does he want us to do? Let brotherly love continue. Verse two, this is gonna be our application today. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So you've been given so much, you've been welcomed into the city, into the kingdom. What should you do with strangers? Show hospitality, it's love for the stranger. Welcome them in. Welcome them in, in a family, friendship, openness kind of way, sitting at the table together. Acceptance, kindness. Look at verse three. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. You know, in those days, uh, if you were in prison for being a Christian, um, I don't want to go to prison here, but I think our prisons here are nicer than Roman-era prisons, mostly because I think they feed you in prisons here. Okay, supposedly in ancient prisons, the only way you're getting food is if your family and friends bring it to you. But try this on, okay? Say you over here get arrested for being a Christian, and you don't have the food you need. The rest of us have a choice to make, don't we? What is it? We need to take them food. But what are they going to know about you if you take them food? You're a Christian too. Are you generous enough to take them food in that moment? Remember those who are in prison, not just in your mind, act on it. Since you also are in the body, have compassion, what it means to be stuck in that hole with no food. 
Be lovingly generous. And we could look again at verse five. Here's something else to do because you know you have this inherit, this kingdom. Verse five, what is it, church? Keep your life free from what? Love of money. You know why people love money? It's because they don't know they have an unshakable kingdom or they don't have the unshakable kingdom. If you know emotion in your life, money, hey, money's important, okay? But you can use money and love God or you can use God and love money. Which one is it? Who has your heart? Who has your goals and your ambitions? Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Are you serious? Why? Well, because he has said, what has God said to you, church? I will never leave you or forsake you. Is he enough? Is God enough? Is his unshakable kingdom enough? Don't love money. Don't live for money. Use money for his kingdom. Verse six, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I won't fear. What can man do to me? Oh, to have a heart like that. I think my heart has been there like three times in my life. <laughs> but to feel that the Lord is my helper. God's your friend, he's gonna show up for you. If you knew God was your friend, he was gonna show up for you. How much fear would you have? Let's see, God verse, bring it, anything else, okay? Bring it, I think God wins. We're good. God verse, whatever you want, it doesn't matter. God wins. God is my helper, I'm not gonna be afraid. What, what, can, what can anybody do to me if God's on my side? Even if you do it, he's in control, he'll work it for good. I'm not afraid. Do you see how the knowledge of this unshakable kingdom leads to loving generosity? There it is. Hebrews 13, six sums it up. Don't neglect to what? Do good and share what you have for, what's, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So as you see, Christians are full of gratitude for the unshakable kingdom. They're full of loving generosity. Okay, what about reverence? Remember the other aspect of our worship? Reverence and awe to a holy God who's brought us near. Well, the second principle here then is when you're full of reverent praise for God, your life will be full of faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. And so you see this, that in this list as well, right? What does verse four say? Hebrews 13, four. Let marriage be held, what? In honor. Among who? All. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You know, the ancient world was amazed that Christians would share their food and their money, but not their wives. Because in the ancient world, in the Greek world, it was, it was, it was uh, the opposite, okay? I'll share my wife, but not my cash. And Christians, Christians flip that around. I'll share my cash, but not my wife. And here's part of it. We have a reverence for God. God invented marriage. It's meant to be held in honor. And, and the marriage bed shouldn't be... Defiled. What's it mean to defile something? Uh, you take something valuable and you just, it, it, you lose its value. You treat it like it's not important or, or not special. It has no dignity anymore. And so you know what that means, right? The marriage bed, we're talking about sex. We remember that God made 
the body, he made marriage, and he made sex as this beautiful way for the body to make and renew a covenant between a man and a woman. It is the expression of holistic, self-giving love. I see you for who you are, and I receive you for who you are, and vice versa. I'm yours and you're mine, no matter what. So sex is the body making and renewing this covenant between a man and a woman. And God sees it as beautiful and valuable and precious. And so what are we as his people who revere him, what are we supposed to do with the marriage bed? Hold it in honor. Hold it in honor. And then you see what God says. God will judge two kinds of people who practice these things, right? None of us gets out alive if we're standing before God's law, okay? We all need to confess and repent and be forgiven. But those who practice these things, God will judge them. What's he gonna judge? He's gonna judge the adulteress. Those are are the folks who defile the marriage bed within marriage, right? And then he also will judge those who defile it outside of marriage. The sexually immoral is just you're not reserving sex for the for the design for which God made it. And if you have a reverence for God, what are you going to do with this command? If you have a reverence for his holiness and what he's done for you, what are you going to do with this command? You're going to want to live it out in faithful obedience. You're going to want to confess uh, the sins we've committed, be forgiven and move towards obedience. If you have no reverence for God, what are you going to do with this passage? Come on, we've evolved past that in the modern world, right? Come on, that's, that's the old way of looking at things. But you know, what I say, you know what I say in the modern world? Really? Really? You know, I had a conversation once with somebody who was telling me that, that sex is no big deal and I said, well, would you get mad if your girlfriend went around and, and shook your friend's hand? No. Okay. Would you get mad if your girlfriend went around and slept with your friends? Yeah. Why? Why? Because we know, don't we? We know it's a covenant-making ceremony. And to, know, to be a Christian is to know even more that God has made it. And so out of reverence, we want a lifestyle of faithful obedience. And there's another picture that's totally different in verses seven to nine. Verses seven to nine. What does the author want here? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. So there's an emphasis there. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by what? Grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So you think of the context again of this Jewish audience. It's important in Jewish religion, right, to eat the right thing, not eat the wrong thing. And as if you're going to get right with God if you eat the right thing and don't eat the wrong thing. Or, or every other religion in the world, really do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. You can be right with God. But that doesn't strengthen the heart because you can't do it right. What does the heart get strengthened by here in this passage? Grace, the heart gets strengthened by grace. Church, how do you know God's grace appropriately, accurately? Where is, the, where is the signpost or the flag of his grace for you? It's in the gospel, isn't it? It's in the gospel, it's in the message of who Jesus is and what he's done. 
Why can we be considered, be considered righteous? Because Jesus lived a perfect life. How can I know I'm forgiven? Because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. How can I know this, is, this has worked for me? It's been vindicated. Jesus rose from the dead, the message of the gospel. And so here the author of Hebrews is saying, be faithfully obedient by clinging to the truth. Cling to the truth. And so part of clinging to the truth is remember faithful leaders who taught you before. Remember that. The faithful ones who lived faithfully, look at their way of life and live that out. Don't be led astray by strange, new, cool teachings. You know, hey, name it, claim it, talk to your wallet, it'll be fat. That's in some churches. Or how about we'll just go two inches deep in church and we'll never actually talk about the gospel. We'll just give you hints for how to have a happy life. Okay? And you never get mad there. Nobody ever confronts you there. No, nobody ever makes you need to confess there. Let's just go there. It's easy. It's cozy. It's comfortable. But it actually, just like these foods, it won't benefit you. It won't benefit you. Your heart needs grace in the gospel. And so this faithful obedience is, even when the world doesn't like it, the crowds won't have it, we're going to cling to what's true. Do you see that? So let me back up. Big picture again. What have we received? Inheritance. This unshakable kingdom. What response should that do in our hearts? Grateful and reverent. The gratefulness will come out in what? Ge loving generosity. And the reverence will show itself how? In faithful obedience. That's the echo of knowing you have this inheritance. That's what we've received, what we have to offer. Now we're gonna talk about where we should go. Look at verse 10. Kind of strange for us. What do you have, church? Did you know this? You have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, again, if you're looking at, into Jewish worship, who got to go in and offer sacrifices at the altar? It would be the priests or the Levitical priests. So, would most of this guy's audience be able to go do that? Are they Levitical priests? Probably not. Would any of you be able to do that if you lived back then? No way, you're not welcome. You can't go to that altar. But now that the author of Hebrews says, oh, we have a better altar and they can't come to ours. So the high priest can't come to the altar that you have. That's incredible. The chief priests can't come to the altar where you get to go. Well, what is that altar? It's the gospel. If they haven't received Jesus, they don't get to go into the true holy of holies to be with God himself through Jesus Christ. You have a better altar. Do you see how the author is always doing this? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Don't go back. Jesus is better. Folks, say they built the temple again in Jerusalem. And say they found out some way to find the Levitical high priest and they started killing cows in that temple in Jerusalem. Where's the better altar, there or here? Here. Why? It has nothing to do with the, the building. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the true altar, the true priest, the true sacrifice is Jesus. He fulfilled it. Don't go back to an empty shell. Don't go back to a meaningless charade. 
the, the old was pointing to the fulfillment, and you have it. You have everything in Christ. But now look at what that means for where you go. Verse 11, for the body of those animals, he's referring to those sacrifices, right? If you read the Leviticus or something, the bottom of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, what do they do with the uh, cow corpses? They're burned outside the camp. You gotta get rid of it somehow, right? Why do you take it outside the camp? So Israel would camp all around one another. They got boundaries. You take these old sacrifice corpses outside the camp and you burn them. Why? It's, a, it's their trash. It's refuse. It's unclean. Now look at this, verse 12. What did Jesus do? Jesus also suffered where? Outside the gate. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see what he's saying? Just like we, the priest would take that old carcass of a cow and burn it out, it's dirty, it's refuse, burn it out there in the hills. Jesus Christ was rejected by his people, dragged out of the city, carrying a cross. And just as those old cow corpses were burned outside the camp, he was hung up naked on a cross, nailed to a cross. That is our ultimate. That is our altar. So you see verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Why? Why? In order, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. How do you get right with God? Jesus' blood purchasing you, cleaning you from your sins, taking all of God's wrath away, removing your sins, welcoming you, making you holy, making you fit. Now look at this amazing verse in verse 13. Therefore, what? Will you read this with me? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Where do you need to go? Outside the camp. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does the illustration mean for us? Well, it's in the last part of the verse. And bear the reproach he endured. He was hated, he was mocked, he was killed, he was rejected, and that's what saved you. And so now, first message, right, he's talking to this, this Jewish church. If they continue to explicitly trust and love and follow and speak for Jesus, what are they going to experience? Reproach. And what has the pastor just told them to do? Walk right into it. Bear the reproach. Bear it, wear it, let's go to him. How would you summarize what it means, right? We're not reproach chasers, right? Should we be reproach chasers? You know what I mean? I gotta be reproached for Jesus to think I'm obedient. So let's go make people really angry. You know, let's go be obnoxious. Let's go be cruel. No, come on. We're not reproach chasers, but we're not going to run from reproach either. Look down at verse 15. Verse 15. Through him then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What is it? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Speak your love for Jesus. 
speak your explicit trust in Jesus. Because we know sometimes the reason we don't do it, right? What happens to you if you speak your love and your trust for Jesus? You'll be thrown outside the camp. Outside the camp of your family, outside the camp of your coworkers, outside the camp of the way the relationship used to be. You'll be outside the camp. And what's the author telling you to do? Go to him. That's where he is. Outside the camp. It's, an ex- it's being explicitly his. Explicitly his. What have we received? Kingdom that can't be shaken. What's the two responses in our hearts? Generosity, reverence. How does the generosity play itself out? Or sorry, how does the gratitude play itself out? Loving generosity. How does the reverence play itself out? Faithful obedience. And now where should we go? Explicit following of him. Living generously and speaking the truth. See, it's not one or the other, right? Some Christians are like, oh, I only speak truth. We don't, we don't care about generosity. Eh. Other Christians are like, oh, just be generous, but I'm not talking. Eh. Which one is it, church? Yes. Yes. What does that have to do with hospitality? Well, I wonder how you could both be lovingly generous and echo the truth in one moment. Anybody want to help me? (laughs) That's brilliant. What should we share with strangers? The news of Jesus. And what should we offer to strangers in verse 2? Offer hospitality. Folks, in a world, we live probably around, we live in probably a post-Christian place. The general idea in America is we tried Christianity, it doesn't work. And, you know, God can and does use all sorts of means to save people. So don't hear me judging one method or another. But I think it's generally true that people are tired of flyers and commercials and attacks. In my experience, and maybe yours too, you tend to listen to somebody who you know cares about you. And you tend to be open to considering new ideas in a sense of conversation and relational safety. And here's this biblical thing that's been there for thousands of years as a practice for the people of God that is supposed to be continually happening. And what is it called? It's hospitality. It's different to talk or show the love of Jesus over a table, over a meal, getting coffee in a living room, isn't it? And doesn't that continuity over time, maybe you don't share the gospel explicitly the first time or the second time, or there's this idea of wisdom of showing them love, showing them they're accepted. You're not just selling something, hey, I'll be nice to you if you believe in Jesus. No, I'm gonna... I'm going to love you whether or not you believe in Jesus. And in that love, I sure would love for you to believe in Jesus. Do you see? Look at the precedent in Scripture. Luke 5, 27. We're going through Luke, right? You remember when Jesus calls uh, Levi the tax collector. Just a beautiful picture because Levi is a tax collector. Big, fat, terrible, horrible, nasty sinner. And Jesus says to him, follow me. 
and, Jesus, and, and Levi leaves everything and follows him. And what's the next step for Levi in following Jesus? Do you see what he does? Verse 29, and Levi made him a what? A great feast. Where? In his house. And who did he invite? All his friends. For Jesus. What is this? It's hospitality. Because you've received a kingdom and you want to share it with others. Now, there's a guy named Michael Green who wrote a book called Evangelism in the Early Church. Look at what he says here. One of the most important methods of spreading the gospel in antiquity was what? It's by the use of homes. It's not just antiquity. I saw two studies this week on the epidemic in America of, anybody wanna guess? Loneliness, loneliness. One source said, feeling sad, lonely, and useless is more than just an emotional quagmire for millions of Americans. Researchers now contend that social isolation and loneliness may represent a greater public health hazard than obesity or a near pack-a-day smoking habit. So what are these people out there feeling like? They're lonely. Some of us were like, yeah, me too, I'm lonely, okay? And what is the Bible telling Christians to pursue? Hospitality to sit and just be accepted and look at somebody face to face and li listen to someone, care about them. Here's the command, offer hospitality to strangers. So what opportunities do you have for hospitality like this because you have this kingdom and you want to live a life of loving generosity in your gratitude and reverent obedience? What opportunities do you have? Well, invite coworkers or neighbors or acquaint what? I don't know. It's up to you. Who you are and what you have. If you're like, I can't do this by myself, talk to someone else in church and we will team together to help one another do hospitality. Amen, right? Can I get an amen? Amen. We will team together. What do I say when they come over? How about you say, how was your week? Or... What was a high and a low for your week this week? Or tell me your story. Or I don't know. Look at Colossians 4, 5. What does Paul tell us to do? Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. You know what I love and hate about wisdom? Wisdom is never like a five point, just do these five things and it'll all work great. Okay. Wisdom is a skillful application of truth and knowledge that changes in different scenarios. Sometimes this is called for, sometimes that is called for. Pray, follow the Spirit, love your neighbor, and cling to those principles of generous love and reverent obedience. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I like how I use that. Do any of you put salt on your food? Okay, my kids are notorious for like, Right, guys? Let's more, more salt. But here's the thing with salt. Uh, have you ever had uh, a meal where they, oops, accidentally spilled a bag of salt into the spaghetti sauce? I was at a camp once and they accidentally spilled the, ch the chili powder into the spaghetti sauce. And hey, I like spicy food, but they're like, hey, we're on a budget. We got to use this mess. Can you over season your food, Christians? You can. Can you under season it as well? It's got no taste. You can, there's a balance between somehow only talking about the weather and pounding somebody with turn or burn. 
Got to find ourselves somewhere fitting, fitting to the moment and to the relationship. Here's another way. Let's offer hospitality to a neighbor in need. One, th- one thing I, I love about this church is we're, we're pretty good about taking meals to somebody when you're sick or, or having a baby or, I mean, it can't last forever, but maybe for a week, for two weeks, many of us have appreciated that and have done that for others. You, you know what I'd like for us to do? Take that outside these walls. So I want you to know, if you have a friend or a coworker or a neighbor who is hitting one of those moments and you think it could work to be like, hey, can, can, can we bring you some meals? We wanna do that as a church for people who don't come to the church. Wouldn't that be great? Keep that on your mind. Keep that on your mind. Let's do that together. Let's offer hospitality. Or here's one more opportunity. We have a progressive dinner every year. How many of you have been to the progressive dinner, okay? It's life-changing. The desserts are (laughs) life-changing. You won't need to eat for the rest of the, you'll eat the next day, but you know how how it goes. What if we were all like, look at what you could do at a progressive dinner. God has told us to offer hospitality to one another. Can you do that at a progressive dinner? Check. Check. And what if each one of us said, you know what, I just want, there's somebody in my life, I want them to see and taste my Christian community. And what if we each said, we're gonna find one unchurched person and just have them tag along with us through that progressive dinner, right? There's no big sermons, okay? It's just folks fellowshipping with one another. Do you think that could be a way to offer hospitality to strangers? Maybe you somebody who doesn't have a community at all. They don't even know what community means. And you bring them in and welcome them and let them, and we sit at the table together. Think we could do that? You know, this passage in Hebrews says, offer hospitality to strangers. You remember what it said after that? For some have entertained angels unaware. Now, as I said last week, I don't think the best interpretation is for you to actually look for a real angel to come eat dinner with you. Oh, that is, I guess that's possible. But I think what the author is getting to, remember he's always bouncing off old covenant ideas, is he's saying that when you do the very normal thing of sit and talk and eat and drink together, when you do that in the name of Jesus, with the grace of Jesus, with the truth of Jesus, when you do it like that, you have no idea what God might do. When Abraham and Sarah were making that dinner for Jesus and the two angels, did they know that's who it was? Did they know what was coming? Or were they just being hospitable? Christians, you've received an unshakable kingdom. Let's go and share it through hospitality. Amen? Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.